0: Would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, and and we're going to read all 25 verses. And uh, if that's beyond your verbal budget, please don't feel like you have to stand. But if you can and you want to prove something to man and God, please stand with me (laughs) as we read through this chapter together. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, the psalmist says, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin in the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, that is for the Jew, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentile? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe. But have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value. The promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And there is no law, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, and he is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, quote, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He is delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Let's pray. Father, we have just uh, read through a, a long passage with uh, a lot of complicated arguments and points and statements. And we ask God that your Holy Spirit would just help us to, to look at it with, in a very simple and clear-cut way that we might receive into our, our minds, first of all, but also into our hearts, into the very deepest recesses of our souls that we might experience the true, full grace of God for us as your people. We, we ask this of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think any of us would disagree with the statement that fathers are important. Uh, their role in our lives is to provide for us and to protect us. And ideally, they do that more than in a material or physical way. Hopefully They also provide and protect us emotionally, mentally, and spiritually as well. And I'm not certainly implying that mothers aren't important. I mean, through moms, we get a lot of affection and unconditional love, hopefully. And that helps us, what I often say, develop the soft side of our personality, that we come to believe because of their love that we're lovable, because of their acceptance that we are acceptable around other people. There's a certain sense of self-esteem and and even emotional security. You know, I I just even know, even as uh, an adult in later life, that there was a certain sense of warmth that you felt in going home. Even my own kid says it always feels good to, to come home because they feel a safety and a security, and moms are really key and central to that. But there's something that we gain that's different from our fathers, and it's simply our identity we get our sense of who I am as distinct from everyone else. And there's a reason why, historically, children have taken their father's name. Because what it does is it establishes kind of our place and our purpose, our, our greater role in the world. And we know who we belong to. In fact, I think the fascination with genealogical research with groups like, organizations like Ancestry.com and so forth is really rooted in the idea that people are trying to find, what plant did I spring from? What, what roots am I part of? And Because somehow when you learn that information, it affects your self-definition. How you see yourself in the bigger whole. But you see, what became starkly evident after World War II, where millions of children were left fatherless, that mental health experts discovered that they were suffering from a thing called absent father syndrome. And what they found with kids who had absent fathers for whatever reason was, number one, that they were five times more likely to commit suicide than parents who had fathers in the home. They had dramatically higher rates of depression and anxiety. were 32 times more likely to be imprisoned, to drop out of school, to have lower incomes and less job security as adults, their increased rates of divorce and relational difficulties were far higher, but substantially they suffered from increased rates of substance abuse, far more mental illness and social dysfunction. In fact, it was so interesting to me as my my father-in-law, who will be turning next month 93 years of age, was sharing with my wife, his daughter, that having lost his father at the age of two, 90 years later, he says, there's still a hole in my life that's never been filled. There's still this hole in my life. It's important for us to understand that Part of what we see in the dysfunctionality of our society today is directly related to this. Our youth ministry actually did a a survey, not only of our high school and middle schoolers, but also through the skate church and with YFC in conjunction, and really trying to say what are the most pressing issues that young people are struggling with today? And you know what they were, the top three things they identified? Number one, they said suicide. Number two, addiction of all kinds. But number three, fatherlessness. The absence of a father in their life. This was their critical issue. In fact, YFC did a more extensive study, and they found that even the suicide issue and the addiction issue really were directly connected to the root of fatherlessness. Suddenly there was this hole in their life that was craving something to fulfill it. So when we look at our city today, which by the way has one of the highest crime rates in the United States right now, where our local hospitals, if you talk to the ER room, half the people coming into them every night, every day, are people who have OD'd or are really freaking out on heroin or methamphetamines. Half. Many of the hospitals, the beds are filled with addicts Try to get into a detox center. The beds are all filled. And you have to sit down and say, what is going on? What, this is a, a health crisis. Suicide is a health crisis. We don't talk about it, and yet it's, it's, it's ramping up to such a degree that the schools are really at wit's end to know how to address it. And one of the things we come back is saying, well, so many of these kids, even if they have a father that's in the home, he's not in their life. He's not part of them. And what they're doing desperately is to try to fill a hole, and when they can't fill the hole, they just try to eliminate the hole by eliminating themselves. It's interesting that the ancient people seem to understand this. It's why ancient peoples, especially the Jews, but not just the Jews, kept these exacting family genealogies, their their family trees. Because they felt that more than anything else, it told everyone else who you were and where you came from, what your future was going to look like, what hopes you had, and what value you possessed. So that even today in in Jewish communities and even in the Muslim uh, Bedouin communities, some people from memory can recite their ancestry from 40 generations back. Just having memorized it, it is so valuable because they understand the power of forefathers to define who we are. Now, as Americans, we have such a short history, it's a little more difficult. I often tell people that I'm a direct descendant of both Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. No, I don't, but nonetheless... When somebody says that, somehow we inherently give them a sense of, well, there's an added value to them. Which necessarily isn't true, but nonetheless, we do derive it. But for the Jews, it was especially true because their forefather was unique from other forefathers. He had this unique uh, nomenclature, basically, that he was called the friend of God. And it wasn't just like so many do saying, I'm God's friend. No, God was telling other people, Abraham is my friend. And we might ask the question, well, why was God so friendly with Abraham? And it's easy to come up with the wrong conclusions. And that's really a lot about what the passage we're looking at today is. People coming up with the wrong conclusion. You know, Mark Twain once said about growing up in America as a teenager, he said that, you know, when I was 14, I, I was convinced my father was the stupidest man on the planet. When I turned 21, I became amazed at how much he'd learned in seven short years. <laughs> it's easy to to think who our parents are, who our fathers are, and, and get it wrong. And part of what I want to talk about today is that that's exactly what the Jews did. That which was most critically defining of their forefather, they lost sight of and they replaced it with all sorts of wrong stuff. And that took their life in a direction that was far from God and far from the peace that he can give. Because Abraham was God's friend, God spoke promises to him. But more than that, He believed the promises and he acted accordingly to it. He completely restructured, reorganized, reoriented his life to simply make it accommodate to what God promised him. That he brought his life into agreement to the promises that God had made. And there were some amazing promises. Genesis 12. God said to him, go to the land I will show you, which is an amazing thing all to itself because it wasn't like Abraham could go down to the tour office and look at the brochures. It wasn't like he could just kind of go on the travel channel and get some, you know, tune up some PBS, Rick Steves and see what it's really like in this place that he's going to. No, he said, go to a place you don't know anything about. Just go there. He knows the direction. Go that way. And you'll know when you're there. Don't you love those kind of directions? (laughs) But go where I'll show it, and I will do this. I will make you a great nation. So here's a guy, 75 years of age, no kids, and God says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. And most of us would say, this is a pretty poor start. (laughs) This is not real promising. I'm going to leave what I know, I'm going to leave the security, I'm going to leave all the safety, and I'm going to go to someplace that I have no idea exactly what I'm going to encounter, and I'm going to become a great nation based upon a barren wife, okay? But he says, I'll bless you, and, and I will make your name great, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I mean, this just gets better all the time. In chapter 13, he comes again, he says, lift up your eyes and all the land that you see I will give you. Look, north, east, south, west, and every direction, it's all yours. As far as you can see, you can have. It's for you and it's for your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Just, I've discovered that there's a lot of dust on the earth. Look up to the heavens. Count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. Incredible promises. Ridiculous promises. Unbelievable promises. And we're told that each time that Abraham, quote, believed the Lord, that word believed, literally, entrusted. He trusted what he said, and God, therefore, credited that trust to him as being righteousness or being in right relationship with God. This is why the Jews were proud to tell Jesus that, quote, in John 8, 39, he says, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure because you don't trust God. You see, like many others, they assumed that because their father was a great man, automatically that made them great. They overlooked the fact that nobility is first a verb long before it ever becomes a noun. Nobility is something that you live. It's not something that you just put on like a title. It's something you do. It's not something that you aren't even necessarily born with. But they were pretty certain that if they kind of did the obvious things that they saw. They kind of imitated Abraham that they would become heirs of everything that was Abraham's. If they dressed like him, if they talked like him, if they act like him. Remind me one time, I had I, come back from a trip overseas someplace and it was a beautiful spring day. And <clears throat> when I got home, my, my oldest granddaughter was there and she was just this little kid. Little, she was probably only about three or four years old. And I was sitting, leaning against the rail, soaking in the sun's rays, and, and I just kind of leaned back with my legs crossed, and I put my arms like this, and I was just looking up, and I caught my wife's eye, and she started directing me over to my granddaughter, and here this little girl, who at the time had no father, was standing next to me, and she was looking at me, and she crossed her legs and then she did this, and then she leaned back, and there we were together. Well, fortunately, by doing that, she didn't become me. Although she has a better beard than I do. But nonetheless, but in a bigger sense, we kind of fall into that trap, don't we? This is what I'm going to become because he's that. And not understanding that there's something much deeper and that's why we find that they begin to seek to justify themselves in God's eyes by their works. And Abraham. that's why Paul asks the question, was Abraham our forefather, was he justified by works, by what he did? Well, he answers that question by simply taking on those things that they thought were the definers. But he begins first of all by saying, Was it because he was circumcised that he was right in God's eyes? I mean, keep in mind, Abraham's the first man we know of in human history who, under the direct command of God, took on what Paul said here, the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness at 75 years of age. You know, circumcision at eight days or after birth is... Is one thing, circumcision at 75 is cruel and unusual punishment. Anybody can sit back and go, I mean, you know, I think about what it would be like just to get a tattoo at my age. I chose a Lee Presson kind with a, got a, you know, unicorn over here and a rainbow over here. I think that's cool, right? I mean, it's like, I look at my kids getting these tattoos and I just going, doesn't that hurt? And they said, oh yeah, really bad. I said, why? Because you get to my age, you do everything you can to avoid any discomfort, much less pain. So, but to have God simply say, what I want you to do is be circumcised. Well, God, what do I do for the pain? Pray. So, I mean, it's, it's not like this was something easy. And that's a lot of times what people think is the way that you get right with God. You pick something that's really hard and really difficult, maybe even painful, and you do that thing. It's called being ritualistic. I know God's here because I'm so miserable. You know? Why do you go to church? Is it fun? No, it's not supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be hard. It's hard, and so you you see people even at the Vatican on their knees going up these marble steps, praying and genuflecting and doing all this stuff because it has to hurt, and so it's easy to go there. That's what God wants. He wants me to do something that's really painful. If I enjoy it or it's pleasurable or I get fulfilled and it's fun, that can't be good, and I just say this from personal history. (laughs) I mean, my early Christian walk was really into that kind of self-abnegation as a way of getting close to God, and I didn't find that I got any closer to God. I didn't feel any more clean or righteous or holy. But Paul even goes on, he says, but I want to point out, he's telling him, there's a chronological problem in this argument. Abraham is declared righteous in God's eyes long before he ever got circumcised. So it can't be the rituals that, 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 that makes us right with God. So he went to the next thing. He says, maybe it was because of the law. Because the Jews took great pride in being the keepers of the law of God. But here again, he points out there is another chronological problem. Moses didn't come down from Mount Sinai for another almost 500 years. We don't read any place that Abraham That Abraham kept the law. We don't read him observing the Sabbath. Maybe he did. There's nothing in the text that says he observed the Sabbath. There's nothing in the text says that he paid tithes and offerings other than one time to Melchizedek. There's nothing in the text that tells us that he didn't enjoy shredded pork. I mean, there's a whole lot of things. There's nothing in the life of Abraham that even touches on any of those things, forbidden foods or certain rituals or certain holy days. In fact, we're told that it's only after he's been declared righteous and he journeys all the way to the land of Canaan and he gets to this new place, he builds an altar and it says, and Abraham began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words... It was only after that that he actually started even worshiping God in any kind of formal or structured way. And besides, as Paul points out, the law never made anybody righteous. Keeping rules and regulations may be good things. They may make you nice neighbors. And believe me, if you're my neighbor or if you're driving along where I'm driving, I like it when you follow the rules. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Rule keepers makes nice neighbors in the same way that sometimes fences do, but the point is it isn't making you better than your neighbor. It doesn't make you a better person just because you understand what a speedometer is for than myself. In fact, what he says is that it doesn't prove your innocence, it proves your guilt. It doesn't bring blessing. In fact, he said the law brings with it a wrath. So his whole point is that if circumcision or, or rituals don't make you right with God, and if keeping all the religious rules and non-religious rules doesn't make you right with God, then it must be good works. It must be good works. Certainly, it had to be. Because, but we soon discover as we look at the life of Abraham that like the rest of us, there was two sides to his falafel. You know, uh, his works were not always good. In fact, he has some really, really big boners in here, man. There's, There's some things he did that are just really... In fact, you know, as a young believer, and I'm reading these stories of Abraham, I'm going, this is the man of God, and he did this? That's what I love about the Bible. It never tries to sugarcoat or to whitewash or cover over the reality of people. It's very transparent. It's, they feel, God feels quite free to disclose these men's faux pas and failures and sins. And so what do we find? We find twice that he throws his wife under the camel <laughs> so that he can escape danger. You go and tell them that you're my sister so they don't come and kill me in order to take you as their wife. So twice, she sits and says, well, yeah, he's my brother. And so first Pharaoh and then Abimelech both take her and put her into their harem. And Abraham just sat back and goes, well, I feel kind of bad about it. But he doesn't say, wait a minute, this is wrong. What am I doing? There's no moral crisis. There's no moment of confession. No, God has to show up at night in both cases and say to each of these guys individually, touch her, you'll die. (laughs) God's watching out for her honor, not Abraham. And then there was this incident with Hagar. Now, I know Paul says, you know, he never wavered in his faith. And, and it's probably true, he just wiggled a little bit. <laughs> I mean, he's waiting for 25 years for Sarah to get pregnant. It's not working. Now, on one hand, I'm saying to continually sleep with a woman of that age who's been so far past menopause and expecting that you're going to have a child, I mean, there's faith in that. Just the trying deserves some credit, Right. <laughs> Good job, Abraham. You're heading for a tent again. That's faith, I believe. But when it doesn't happen, she comes with an incredible idea. See this young, attractive servant of mine. I know her plumbing works. Let's see if we can cook something up in her kitchen. So he goes and sleeps with her, and lo and behold, it works. She gets pregnant. And yet, when the child is growing and Abraham says, Lord, God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a son. He says, "Oh, don't bother. I already took care of it. I fixed it for you, Lord. You were a little late. I fixed it for you. He says, that was you. That That was basic biology there. There's no miracle there. There's no wonder there. There's there's no exercise of God's greatness. That was all you're doing, and, and I'll take care of him. I'll bless him because he's your son, but I have another plan. I'm going to do something that's so far out of the pale, so beyond anything that anybody has ever heard or seen. I'm going to raise a child out of the deadness of your body. I'm going to raise a child from the dead out of Sarah's body. I'm going to do something that you couldn't do, and I'm going to do it because I'm God, and I'm going to do it because you're my friend and because I made promises to you. In fact, it's interesting about those promises because as you follow the history of Israel all the way through the Old Testament, you find that God constantly goes back and says, you guys aren't doing that well, but because of the promises I made to Abraham, I'm going to continue with you. I'm going to honor my promises to your forefathers not because of what you do, even not even because of what you haven't done. So if it wasn't circumcision that made him right in God's eyes, or religion, or, and if it wasn't the law or the keeping of rules, and if it wasn't good works by simply being a moral God that God found so attractive about Abraham, what was it? And it's interesting. I, you, know, you know my tendency. I try to look for words and phrases that get repeated over and over and over and over again. And it's interesting how many repetitions we have in this chapter. Nine times we're told in chapter faith 4, his faith was credited as righteousness. Now, everybody has faith. (laughs) I mean, you showed up here today in faith. You got in the car and pushed the ignition or turned the key or however your machine starts. You did that in faith. You had no promise or guarantee that the battery was alive and the engine would turn over. But you simply believed it because that's your past experience. But you also know that it's quite possible that it might not. You have faith that you have faith when you drive across a bridge or... Climb up on a ladder or eat your wife's cooking. I mean, you, you do these things in faith. You don't have no promise that she didn't poison you. No, I mean, it's not likelihood, right? It's not likely. But, you know, you have faith when you go to Chipotle. You know what I mean? You just do. And believe me, it do- I, don't, I don't think twice about it. But maybe sometimes you should. But nonetheless, you don't think twice about climbing in a, an airplane composed of over a million parts put together by the lowest bidder <laughs> and letting it thrust you at hundreds of miles an hour through the sky. And you have faith that one way or another you're going to reach your destination you just have faith. My wife and I went to visit Brian and the kids and my daughter-in-law and stuff back in Nashville. We had the, the pleasure of, uh, of flying through a tornado. Saw Dorothy, Toto. <laughs> Her life and my life passed before my eyes. I've been on a lot of rough flights that I have to tell. I don't that this. Is, this really takes the cake. I, I've never seen a uh, been in a plane that moved in that many directions all at the same time, and it was good. We actually we had, we had to divert and we flew over it and and into went into an Atlanta, so that we could catch another plane going right back into it. <laughs> this, the science of it really eludes me, but. You know, it's one of those kind of things, but you're sitting there going, you know, you do this kind of stuff in faith. So the issue isn't, do I have enough faith? You have faith, but it's what Abraham did with this faith. And that's where the part comes in when he says, Abraham, because of his faith in God, believed God. He believed him enough to uproot and move to Canaan. He believed him enough to be circumcised. He believed him enough to continue to sleep with his wife, even though he said he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. He's glorifying God even though the promise is still nowhere close to being fulfilled. In fact, it just simply says he believed. What did he believe? He believed that God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. That kind of faith, that kind of belief doesn't impress rational people. That when people like you and I say, I can't even completely explain it, but I just really feel in my heart, this is what God wants me to do. And there are those well-intentioned people in our lives who we're going, wait a minute, time out, that makes absolutely no sense. Let's do the math here. Let's add this up. Let's... And it makes the struggle even greater because the mind does not grab it. It doesn't add up. The math doesn't work. And even after God gives him Isaac, he gives him this, what we call the son of the promise, because here's a son that wasn't the son of procreation. He was the son of promise. The son of the promise is there, and then God says, I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham does it. We know the story. God stops his hand But it's interesting because the very thing afterwards, he says, number one, he says, now I know what's in your heart. Now I know that you do believe me with all of your heart. You go for years hoping for God to do something, to fulfill a promise, and it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen for decades, it doesn't happen, and then it finally happens. You think, wow, praise God, that trial is over. And then God says, just that moment when you think, God has been faithful to fulfill everything, he says, now I want you to give up the promise. You ever been there? Somebody once referred to it as the double death of a vision (laughs) where suddenly God, the very thing that you said you promised me, it looks like it's all going to evaporate in a moment because that boy dies, whether by my hand or disease or, you know, in a camel riot or whatever it is that boy dies. The promise is over. But Abraham believed God. He believed that God was trustworthy, that God could be trusted. And as a result, nine times in the text we read, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, credited, what does he mean it was credited to him? Nine times that it was credited to him, it's credited to him, it's credited to him, over and over and over again. What does that mean? The best thing I think of is a gift card. (laughs) That God comes from the eternal bank of Jesus Christ, He gives you this gift card. Not a debit card, because the debit card implies it's your money. Not a credit card, because it implies you have to pay it back. I thought this through. (laughs) It's a gift card. It has your account, seven, 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 all 16 sevens. I mean, God has given you this gift card, and you're going, oh, this is wonderful. What did I do to earn this gift card? And God said, we're going to have to start all over again now. You didn't do anything, except when I offered it to you, you took it. And it's interesting. It's, it, it, it only has one kind of currency that's only valid In heaven it's called righteousness God says here why because when I offered it to you you took it and when you took it you began to live believing that it was true you began to wake up in the morning believing that you were righteous in his eyes you woke up believing and trusting That even though you are a sinner, those sins have been forgiven. That you are new in Jesus Christ, that the past is gone and the future is promised and will be fulfilled. And what we need to do is just give credit to God for crediting righteousness to us. That's why he said at the end of the chapter, he said, God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead for he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So those of us who struggle with believing that we're forgiven, and I think that's all of us at one time and to certain degrees, I mean, think about it. Every time something goes wrong, is there not that thought that suddenly says, you know, this is happening because... That every negative thing, every challenge, every crisis is interpreted as being the judgment of God. And that's why if you're standing before God based upon your good works or bad works, you can draw that direct relationship... But when you become a child of the promise and you begin to believe, no, God has made certain unchangeable promises to me, that my God has forgiven me for my sins so that I am no longer defining myself by those things, but I'm defining myself by His grace. Now, I know some of you are really wrestling with this right now. You come from the first church of a pound of flesh, you know, it's, it's got to be, this, we got to balance these scales. God put his hand on the scale and pushed it all the way over on the side of righteousness and said, "Now there's balance. It's all of me, it's none of you. And I want you to accept my grace. And I want you to accept that I am your father. And I look at you and I find pleasure in you and I call you my friend. I call you my friend. That's a slippery concept for a lot of us because a lot of us don't have really any friends. Not really. They say statistically, I mean, you can have 50 acquaintances. Get beyond that, you you can't remember names. (laughs) You know? You can't really say you know much about them. You can have about 50 in your life. If Jesus' example carries through, and I think it does, there can be 12 people that you can interact with on a pretty intimate level. But even Jesus in the end had three whom he really poured himself into. And I would say that if you have three people in your life who you know are really, really, really your friend, they're, they're the people who, when things go wrong, don't wait for you to call them When they hear something's gone wrong, they call you and say, how are you doing? They're that that connected to you. So when we talk about God being our friend, some of us go, um, well, I'm pretty hopeful that he's acquainted with me. I'm pretty hopeful he'll let me be part of the merry band that follows him across the countryside. But does God enjoy me? Does God really enjoy me? It's hard to develop any kind of quiet time, any devotional life, any time where you sit quietly in the presence of God reading His Word. If you're not convinced that God enjoys that moment with you, it's hard to pray believing when you think that God is kind of every once in a while checking His watch to see how much longer you're going to drone on. But when you have a friend... I, I think at this point in my life, I, I said this on Wednesday night, but I, I think my brother is my best friend. You know, maybe that's happened as you get older. <laughs> but anything, and it's an interesting thing because I find myself looking forward with anticipation to the opportunity for us to get together and hang out. Now, fortunately, one of my wife's best friends is his wife that works pretty good because my brother and I sit in the corner and talk at the same time and tell the same stories over and over again and laugh our heads off and think we and think we're so clever and hilarious <laughs> we enjoy ourselves immensely and they just sit there and make sushi you know it's like but I get that but there's something about that idea that I know that he enjoys me being there as much as I enjoy being there that's friendship And God's saying to you, "Because you trusted me, you're my friend." And you're, in, you're, I know you got all sorts of Abraham-like issues. You've thrown your wife, your husband under the camel. You've, you know, only toasted one side of the falafel. I mean, you've got all that stuff in your life. You have got this whole inventory. I get that, but that doesn't change the fact that you're my friend. And, you, and the reason you're my friend is simply because you said, Lord, I believe and I'm going to trust my life to you. Amen. Father, I pray that you would just bring a simplicity and a clarity to our minds. I confess as I kind of travailed over this chapter, I thought, how in the world... I pray Lord that your holy spirit has done what I can't do that you've spoken to us on a level that that even words and minds can't comprehend that there would be something that goes deep deep into our souls that would heal us and free us and enable us to begin to enjoy the fact that you enjoy us that you have left us with great and precious promises And you always keep your word despite the weather reports. In spite of how things may look on the horizon, you always keep your word. And we can trust in that. God, I pray that you just work this deep in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in a little time of reflection, time of worship. I always encourage you to hang out if you can. I know some of you have him important things like brunch to get to and stuff, but uh, we do offer well, it's not brunch, but we offer the elements that you might first feed your soul. Because every time we, we partake of these elements, it's, it's really in a way, another way of saying, I believe that Jesus' death on the cross was for me, and it was sufficient. And that when he declared, it is finished, it was finished. My past life and all of its problems and issues are finished, and I am now new in Christ. I am a new creation, and I believe that. And so I encourage you to partake of the elements. I encourage you to spend some time just meditating maybe, thinking about talking to God, whatever needs to happen. If you want prayer, myself and some others will be available up here to pray with you. But I believe this that God oftentimes brings impossible challenges into our life because He's the God who overcomes the impossible. I've referred to Him as God sized challenges. When, it's, when I look at Him going, there, I don't know what to do, that's a God sized challenge. And, I, and I've seen Him do it, and I know He'll do it in your life. Bring it to Him and let him prove to you that he's your friend.